Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you can join us for today's webinar titled, Continuing Education Course, Level Funded Health Plans, What Advisors Should Know. Next slide, please. Welcome to this continuing education course sponsored by Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. This course has been approved for one hour of CE credit by the California Department of Insurance. We have been instructed to conduct, I'm sorry, we have been instructed to conduct polling questions throughout the presentation. In order to receive CE credit, you must answer all polling questions. Your responses are recorded. Also, it is advised that you are participating in this webinar from a computer as opposed to a cell phone because there have been issues in the past with people answering questions through their cell phone. Our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck are available for your download. We report CE credits to the Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. Your CE credit should show up on your CDI online account within 30 days. And if you have any questions or need any assistance regarding CE credit, regarding CE credit or, or if you have any questions or issues regarding technology throughout this presentation, my name, once again, is Natalie Cole. There's my phone number, but for immediate response, you can email me or go ahead and um, send your request to the question box and I'll be happy to help. Before I introduce today's presenter, I want to let you know that we welcome your questions. Please enter them in the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. Now, for today's presenter. Today's presenter is Mr. David Fear Sr., a 40-year veteran of the employee benefits industry. Dave merged his organization, Shepler and Fear, with Dickerson and the Allaire Group in May 2019. Dave's expertise and background are in the areas of alternative funding, benefit plan compliance, and group purchasing arrangements. He is the former president of the National, of the National Association of Health Underwriters and the 2015 recipient of the Harold R. Gordon Memorial Award from NAHU as the Health Insurance Person of the Year. So Dave, how are you this morning? I am great. Can you hear me okay, Natalie? Yes, I can. I think I got beyond all my technical issues from last week, so that's a good sign. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Let's hope so. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome back to uh, Dave's Corner and the CE course. Um, I just want to mention uh, quickly that uh, we did uh, present this course uh, last year, uh, I think in the month of June. Uh, but there were a number of people who um, wanted it repeated uh, earlier this year, and we tried to do that. So uh, I'm looking forward to um, presenting this and uh, answering any questions that you may have. Before we get started, I just wanted you to know that we have um, several co-sponsors today. Uh, these, are, th these are our level-funded uh, partners uh, uh, for the year 2022, uh, Aetna, Health Plans, Allied National, Anthem Blue Cross, Cielo Star, Cigna, uh, Trustmark, and United Healthcare. 
these are the seven carriers that we work with here in California and as well as in other states outside of California and um, are very happy to have them on board uh, as our partners. Uh, with that said, let me uh, let me delve right into the material here. Um, the first question that, that we, we want to try and answer is, well, what what the what the heck is level funding, Dave? I've, I've heard about this, but I'm not quite sure what it is. So let me just give you a, some basic information. Um, level funded uh, health plans have actually been around uh, for for about 40 years. Um, the best way to describe it is that it's it's a type of self-funded plan that looks and feels like a fully insured plan. That's the best way to describe it. As we go forward here in a few minutes, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, as I said, it, it, these types of plans were developed several years ago by various carriers, but quite frankly, have been perfected over the last decade as an option for smaller employers or as a transition step um, from being fully insured into a self-funded arrangement. And, and we'll talk more about that in a second as well. Uh, today, there are, there are no fewer than a dozen carriers that are selling these types of uh, plans in the United States. As I, as I said, we, we represent seven of them here in, in California, but uh, different states have different carriers in that market. Um, what, what level funding does is it provides the employer with, with three things that I think is very important. First, it provides them with the same security as purchasing traditional fully insured coverage because uh, in a level funded arrangement, they pay a, a level premium payment each month regardless of what their paid claims look like. And, and again, we'll go into some detail on that. The second thing it does is that it provides protection from large or frequent claims through the use of stop-loss insurance. And this stop-loss insurance coverage is uh, packaged together with, with everything in, in, the, in the level funded arrangement. So a cost component of the level funding is this stop-loss insurance premium. And, and we'll, we'll talk a, a lot more about that. And then finally, the, the third reason that uh, employers look at this is that it provides the employer the ability to retain all or a part of the claim surplus dollars with a guarantee that claims will not exceed a predetermined level. So if I'm, if I'm selling an employer, if I'm an insurance carrier and I'm selling uh, an employer a level funded plan and the estimated cost, the maximum cost of that plan is, is uh, $250,000 a year just to use an arbitrary number, um, there is a portion of that $250,000 that is allocated for the payment of claims. And if they have um, money left in that claims account at the end of the year, after a certain runoff period, uh, they, may, they may refund all or a portion of that surplus back to the employer. So that's why level funding is, is growing in popularity. Okay. So why why does why would an employer considering consider setting up a level funded plan? Well, as you can see from from the uh, the chart here, level funding obviously prevent, provides a, a, the potential for savings after you know claims and stop loss premiums and administrative expenses have all been you know paid out. There is a potential there for some savings and 
it's not guaranteed or anything, but the potential is very good depending on what kind of a plan design you have and, and where you're located and what your, what your overall uh, health condition of the group is, as opposed to a traditional fully insured plan, which is, you know, 100% paid to the carrier and there's, there's no refund. So um, some of the advantages that, that people cite in, in these level funded plans is first, a, a lower net cost of benefits. I mean, if you take this gross premium that's being paid and you subtract from it any surplus, that equals the net cost, and and that's good. That's uh, you've effectively eliminated all or part of the carrier's profit margin, so you're getting the, the lowest net cost possible as the uh, purchasing employer. The second reason is is the flexible plan designs. Uh, plan designs under these level funded plans have to meet uh, federal requirements, not state requirements. So. State uh, benefit uh, mandates do not apply to a level funded plan because they're they're um, regulated under federal law, not state law. But these flexible plan designs uh, can be very exciting because you can literally duplicate, for example, uh, the plans that you have now on a fully insured basis with one under level funding, or you can make modifications to that plan and kind of customize it the way you want them. And while some carriers have more flexibility than others, I, as a general rule, uh, there's there's usually a way to, to find the right plan design that meets your specific needs in a level funded arrangement. The third, the third reason is that, uh, and I mentioned this before, is stop loss insurance protection from excessive claims. I mean, I, you know, if, if somebody uh, goes out and, and they have a, a set of premature twins and it runs up a two and a half million dollar hospital bill, uh, that's, a, that's a big chunk of um, risk there that no, no single employer wants to take that risk. So they have stop loss insurance to protect them from these large uh, or excessive claims. Another reason is that, and I think I kind of mentioned this already, is that uh, because these plans are not subject to state uh, insurance regulation, they're also not uh, subject to state insurance premium taxes on the entire amount. While stop loss premiums uh, uh, you know, have premium taxes built in, the entire cost of the plan um, does not pay, uh, is charged premium tax on that, on that full cost. And, uh, and that's, that can add up to some money, especially in states where we now see premium taxes you know, in excess of three or 4%. And then uh, the, the last reason that, that employers are looking at this is better transparency of costs. You know, one of the issues that we have in, in California in particular is that you can't get claims experience um, from the health insurance company. And um, while there are some states that actually have a law that requires that the insurance carrier to provide claims information, uh, that law doesn't exist in California. And so what we see is that, you know, if I'm an employer and I'm spending a half a million dollars a year on health insurance uh, benefits, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to have an idea of what my claims look like. You know, it's, it's kind of similar to the way employers feel about workers' compensation and coverage. You know, they, they pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for workers' comp coverage. It's required under state law and um, the workers' comp insurance uh, companies are all, uh, all have to provide what's called loss runs uh, to the employer. 
And uh, that's not true in the health insurance side. So what you see is, is that in level funding, you see transparency because they're providing claims, they're providing provider information, the utilization, uh, even the commissions and the fees that are charged and, and paid within this. It's all very transparent. We, we can't hide a lot of this stuff. For small employers, uh, I consider level funding to be the next natural step towards assuming more risk in exchange for keeping some or all of that surplus. And for mid-sized employers, level funding is viewed uh, by many as a transition step towards going into a fully self-funded plan or even a benefit captive program. So those are some of the reasons why, why level funding is, is uh, a viable uh, option. Okay, we now come to our first polling question. Uh, Natalie, um, you want to go ahead and run that? Yes. And that first polling question is, uh, level funding is a form of self-funding and as such is regulated by state insurance laws. Is that true or false? I forgot to bring my Jeopardy music again. <laughs> it's becoming a problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, she'll she'll close this off when we when we've had about uh, you know ninety percent of you uh, answer that question. Hopefully, a hundred percent are. But. Yes, and remember, you need to answer all four questions in order to receive CE in order to be eligible to receive CE credit. Yeah, this is something that the, the state the, the Department of Insurance is now requiring on these online courses, and uh, so we'll have a little bit of fun with it. How are we doing? I'm going to give it about 20 more seconds and we're going to close it and show the results. Okay. While we're waiting, I'll take a big swig of my lemonade here. Yes, definitely stay hydrated. It's really hot. To, it's getting hot this weekend. <laughs> yes. Okay. And. 54% voted false. Well, interesting. Well, the, the answer is uh, B, it is false. It's not, uh, level funding is not regulated by state insurance laws. It's regulated under, under federal ERISA law. Okay, very good. Let's, uh, let's keep going here. So uh, I kind of mentioned this already, but, but to be clear, when we look at a level funded plan, there are three cost components. For every every dollar that you're paying into a level funded plan, that dollar is being divided up into three areas. The cost of administration, which uh, might be you know anywhere between 15 and, and 20 percent. Uh, the cost of stop loss insurance, which can amount to you know 40 or 50 percent of the total cost, depending on how much stop loss insurance is purchased. And then finally, the, the cost of claims, which uh, generally will be anywhere between 40 and 50% of the, of the total uh, bill. So let's look at each one of these uh, cost components uh, separately. First off, let's talk about stop loss insurance. As I mentioned before, uh, there's, there are two types of stop loss insurance. There's one is called specific stop loss, and this basically uh, protects the plan uh, against any individual uh, risk claims that come up. So you, you would buy a specific stop loss that has a deductible, and those deductibles generally range between 10 and $100,000 per person. 
Uh, I'll talk more about what the law requires in California, but but um, obviously the higher the deductible, the lower the cost of, of a specific stop loss coverage will be. Uh, most specific stop loss policies include what's called an advanced funding benefit. In other words, in, in the old days, they used to say, if you have a specific claim, uh, you have to pay the claim first and then apply to get uh, reimbursed, which could be a, a real problem if you're paying for you know, two, uh, a set of premature uh, twins in Fresno, California, two and a half million dollars. So they, they now include provisions called advanced funding, meaning that once the uh, plan has paid its, its deductible share, uh, then the carrier steps up and, and pays the balance. So there's no, there's no waiting for the carrier to reimburse you or anything. That's good. Uh, most stop loss uh, contracts, uh, specific stop loss insurance contracts, uh, allow for claims that are incurred in the 12 policy months and then paid in, um, say, 18, 21, or 24 months, or, or even longer in some cases. So you, you've got, you know, what we call claims lag. So, you know, a claim might be incurred on, on uh, December 15th of a year, uh, but it may not actually all be paid out until February or even uh, April, depending on the size of the claim. So they, they allow for what's called an incurred and paid contract of 12 months uh, incurred and, and say an 18 or 21 or 24 month paid period. And that's, uh, that's good, you should, you, you need that. Uh, they have options for what's called terminal liability coverage, meaning that if you terminated uh, your level funded plan, you can still uh, have a stop loss insurance enforced for the runoff claims uh, after the, uh, the liability you incur after termination. And typically there's a, a provision that most of these plans do not allow for lasering of specific claims. That, that means where the carrier would step in and say, look, you've got one person here that is gonna have uh, large claims this year, and we're gonna put a specific stop loss deductible of 100,000 on them, or everybody else will get a 50,000, but we're gonna put 100,000 on them so that your premium is a little bit lower. We don't see any lasering. I don't see any lasering in any of the level funded plans that, that we work with. And then finally, uh, as I mentioned, stop loss insurance, specific stop loss is packaged within the total cost of the level funded plan. It's not paid separately, so it's all, it's all in one package. The other type of stop loss is uh, aggregate stop loss. And this is a, think of it as, a, as an umbrella policy that, that basically says that it protects the overall risk of the group for uh, total claims paid. And an aggregate stop loss has what's called an attachment point that says uh, the aggregate stop loss will kick in when the paid claims reach say 110 or 125 or or even 150% of expected paid claims. This is all kind of negotiated up front. Um, these aggregate uh, uh, policies uh, give the employer kind of peace of mind at night. And that's one of the reasons why they have a fixed amount that they pay every month to their um, uh, level funded plan because it has this aggregate stop loss built in to guarantee that uh, the claims, uh, regardless of what the claims are, are in a particular month, that aggregate stop loss limits what the employer's liability is. Uh, most of these plans include what's called a monthly accommodation of benefits. It's kind of built into this. 
Uh, the contracts, as I said before, are typically the same as with a specific stop loss, 12 months incurred and, and say 18 month paid or 24 month paid. And there are uh, optional terminal liability provisions in an aggregate stop loss contract as well. Um, some other considerations here is that most level funded plans are administered by the insurance company as is, you know, you know, I just listed uh, many of them uh, at the beginning here. A few are administered by an independent third party administrator, TPA, and we'll talk more about that uh, in a minute. So one of the questions that we always tell our clients is, you know, when you're if you're buying a fully insured plan out there, you usually want to know what the carrier rating or the financial status of that insurance company is. And that would be a same consideration that you'd have at level funding. You know, who's the company backing this up? Who's the company providing the stop loss insurance and stuff? And then um, are the rates that uh, were being paid, are they loaded with, uh, or, or are they loaded or are they net of any broker commission? And as I said before, uh, those are things that are, are, are very uh, transparent and, and easy to point at. Let me then talk about uh, one of the one of the more important aspects of level funding, and that is the issue of underwriting. You know, you you go to an, and and think about underwriting the same way in in the large group market. You know, in the in the small group market today, there's there's not a lot of underwriting. I mean, you under under the ACA, you go in, you you uh, put in a census, and it gives you back uh, you know community rates uh, based on the uh, individual member ages and and the plan design and the geographic location. Well, in the level funded arena, uh, it's very different. Um, it's very similar to the way uh, the large group market operates today, which means that they 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 take and they create a rate. Uh, that's based on the demographics of the group, and the plan design, and, and these types of things. But the big difference is, remember I talked about that, that aggregate stop loss before, and the aggregate stop loss has to be set at a level so that the insurance carrier says, okay, we, we believe that you're going to have $200,000 of claims this year, and your aggregate stop loss is going to be set at, say, of 225,000 or, or, you know, some factor of that. So what they'll do is, is that, you know, when they're developing what the cost of a, a level funded plan will be, they, they then um, uh, take the census demographics, you know, the age, the gender, location, the plan design, uh, if available, if there's claims history, and, and that's not true in, in most of California small group, uh, they'll, they'll, um, they'll try to get claims history. There are some services out there that now provide what's called claims harvesting, which is a, a discussion for another day, but most people aren't doing that. Uh, they'll look into the rate history, so they'll, they'll try to back into what the paid claims will be based on their rate history. And, and again, some, some will use that, uh, the rules of the 80 or 85% MLR uh, uh, maximum uh, loss ratio assumption under the under the law to kind of back into where they think your claims will be. And and then there's generally three types of, of underwriting that's being done. Uh, uh, one involves individual health questionnaires or I, I, IHQs. Um, this would be a situation where if you have a smaller uh, group, uh, say under uh, 30, maybe 25 lives, uh, each person that's going to be enrolling would submit 
an individual health questionnaire to the carrier. It could be done online, it could be done via paper or even telephonic, but they'll, they'll take those individual health questionnaires, they'll go through them and try to determine what the uh, expected paid claims will be based on everybody's individual health histories. Um, obviously, I, uh, IHQs are, are not particularly, you know, uh, popular right now, especially in a, a level of, you know, a guaranteed issue market that we're in. And so some carriers have developed what's called simplified uh, underwriting. And, they, and there's generally two methods that I'm seeing. One is, is to use a national RX database. And I refer to this as the Curve RX system, which is a national database uh, developed by uh, Milliman Robertson. And it, um, it, what you do is you put the census in of all members in the group and it pings this database which then returns uh, information to the underwriter uh, about the prescription drug usage of all of the people that were on the census. And then knowing that prescription, having that prescription drug information allows the uh, underwriter to make some assumptions about the, the diagnosis of any ongoing conditions based on the Rx use. Uh, and that generates then uh, what we call a risk score for the group as a whole. Uh, that, along with an employer questionnaire, is submitted, and then they come up with a rate based on, on those two things. Uh, another simplified method that's being used and, and is gaining some popularity um, is what I call using alternative databases. And there's a company out there called Verikai. They're, a, they're a, a, I think, a publicly traded company now that Verikai has developed um, a, a similar approach to CurveRx in that you, you again submit a, a census of all members and it pings all these other databases that are out there, such as uh, you know a, a credit reports or, or health information or prescription drug usage or anything. Uh, and it will generate a, a risk score for the group as a whole. And this is catching on and it's becoming quite popular because as, as you all know, you know it, these, these credit reports and stuff, they, they contain a lot of you know, personal information, you know, um, what's going on? Do you have any medical debt? Do you have, you know, uh, you name it. And so again, they'll they'll take that information, not just uh, based on prescription drug, but, but other sources. And uh, again, the employer provides a, a questionnaire as well. So these types of things are done to underwrite the risk to determine, you know, what their rates are gonna be. And as I said before, the underwriter then does their best to estimate what the expected paid claims will be for that group. So if you've got a group of, say, 50 people and they submit this information, what the underwriter is trying to determine is, you know, what's the risk profile look like? You know, we can, we can, we can say, hey, the average group of these demographics is going to have X amount of, of paid claims, but this risk profile that we received uh, indicates that they're maybe going to be 30% higher than normal because of of, of existing, uh, you know, claims information or, or data that we have. So, you know, to be candid with you, when I'm when I'm an underwriter and I'm sitting down and I'm trying to determine what the paid claims are going to be, they'll they'll always assume that in the first year there's going to be a claims lag when they transition from a fully insured plan into level uh, level funding, and that's that needs to be taken into consideration. And then they assign that risk corridor that we talked about, the attachment point, that can be anywhere between 110 and 150%. Um, 
one thing you need to remember here is that level funding is not uh, it's not subject to the guaranteed issue requirements uh, or rating requirements of the ACA. Uh, a group can be turned down for coverage. So similar similar to the fully insured market today. Uh, you know, you get carriers that you know, well, we won't, you know, we're not going to quote on this group because it's uh, it presents a bad risk and, and our rates would be uncompetitive. Well, the fact is, is that uh, they are turning down large groups for coverage by just saying, well, here's the, here's the rate we're going to give you and it's ridiculously high because we think you're a bad risk. So, you know, there, there's a certain amount of that that's going on in the level funded area as well. So they could be turned down uh, for, for coverage as a group. And, and remember that even though they're not subject to the requirements of uh, guaranteed issue or rating requirements of the ACA, um, these level funded plans must provide minimum essential or minimum value coverage in order to meet the employer mandate requirements of the ACA. Remember how I said that they're, they're mandated under federal ERISA law, not under state law. Well, you know, federal ERISA law says that if you're in a, a large employer, especially, and you're offering coverage to your people and you want to avoid the uh, employer mandate requirements, uh, you've got to offer at least minimum essential or minimum value coverage. And that's what a level funded plan uh, will do. I'm not going to go through a lot of this right now, but if I'm, but if I'm an underwriter and I'm trying to develop a, a rate for a level funded plan, this is a chart that I've used over the years and, and it gives you an example of of how that underwriter works. And, and I, I wouldn't get real concerned about this right now because um, frankly, it's, you know, it, it's, it's really technical stuff, but you know, if I've got a group of a hundred people and I show, you know, paid claims in the prior 12 months of $450,000, I then will, will take that information. I'll, I'll come up with a, what I call a per member per month, cost of, of, of claims coverage in the, in the past. I'll then take that, I'll load that uh, amount for a trend, which might say run at 1% a month. I'll then um, load that to say 25% for the aggregate claims corridor. And, uh, and then again, depending on what sort of incurred and paid contract we're running here, uh, I'll, I'll convert that over into a final number. So so in this particular case, if I'm looking at this group that provided this information that you see, uh, what, I'm, what I'm basically coming up with is an attachment point that says, this is where we think your claims will be and, and that's what we're gonna effectively quote you in this deal. Um, if they don't have paid claims information then the underwriters will use that premium rate history or the curve RX or the individual you know, questionnaires that I talked about uh, before to come up with an estimate of what they think the paid claims will be. So it, it can be tricky, but I would say that most of the carriers we work with really have this down to a science and they, they do a good job with that. And frankly, their, their underwriting decisions are now made in, in uh, uh, a matter of uh, you know, hours and, and days rather than weeks and months. And, and that's always helpful. Let me then address uh, an, an issue that's um, pretty touchy here in California, and that involves what, what's called state minimum stop-loss laws. Um, a number of states, including uh, California, passed legislation uh, earlier uh, in, in, in you know, a few years ago um, to discourage 
small employers from leaving the insured pools and going into self-funding. That, that was the purpose of this, was to just say, we don't want these small employers to all uh, you know, leave the pools that we're setting up for them. We want them to be in the fully insured market. And of course, you know, the politics behind that decision is discussion for another day. Uh, here in California, we passed a law. It was called SB 161. It was signed into law in 2013 by Governor Brown. And it basically says that as of today, the minimum specific stop loss deductible that a, uh, that a stop loss insurance company can sell to a small employer. And a small employer is defined as employers with two to 100 uh, eligible employees. Uh, the minimum specific stop loss is $40,000. And the minimum aggregate attachment point per person is $5,000 with a minimum aggregate factor of 110%. So understand that these laws they don't regulate the employer because the employer who sets up a self a self-funded or level-funded plan is is basically exempt from state insurance regulation, but they're they're um, exempt under ERISA or federal law. But these laws uh, and these these laws don't attempt to regulate the employer because they can't, but they regulate the stop-loss insurance company who's selling this coverage in the state. And so if you're an insurance carrier, uh, and I don't care who it is, and you're doing business in California and you're selling stop loss insurance to, to um, small employers, you have to, you have to uh, offer those employers these minimums. Uh, you can't go below that. Um, I will tell you that, well, let me, let me just comment this way. When, when SB 161 was passed into law, that minimum $5,000 uh, aggregate attachment point per person was about twice as expensive as what insured premium rates were at that time. Uh, today, we're seeing that richer plans, you know, platinum, gold, and even some silver plans now have premium equivalents of uh, more than $5,000 per year, which means that the self-funding and level funding programs are beginning to make a comeback in California depending on the plan design. And if you were part of our uh, carrier roundtable last week, this time I had each one of the carriers, we had six of our uh, carrier partners uh, in on that, or, I'm sorry, five in on that. And they all uh, talked about their, their programs and how they meet these, these California uh, minimum requirements. But they are you know, starting to see that that $5,000 equivalent level is not nearly as uh, draconian as it was uh, uh, eight, nine years ago when it was passed. Um, I will tell you that there are some third party administrators out there who've established some trusts outside of California, which allow small employers to join the trust to purchase stop loss that might be regulated under more favorable state laws uh, where the trust was established. And I, I don't see a lot of that, but I, I see some of it uh, that has happened in the last uh, few years. Uh, Natalie, it's time for polling question number two. Can you uh, let's uh, can we open that up again? Yes. All right. So, polling question number two: Which of the following does not apply to a level-funded plan? Is it A. Stop-loss insurance, B. Administrative services, C. That the plan must be guaranteed issue under the Affordable Care Act, or D 
and refund of claim surplus dollars. Which of those four items does not apply to a level funded plan? And we'll give everybody a, a few seconds to answer that and we'll move on. Sounds good. I hope you're staying hydrated. Yeah, I'm doing my best. Good. We're going to give it about 20 seconds. I have my sugar free lemonade here today, so I'm very happy. <laughs> I tell you, I'm going to Death Valley National Park next week with my wife. We're taking the motor home down there. And I got to have to work on my hydration when I'm down there because I think it's going to warm up. Exactly. <laughs> All right, how do we look? Okay, we're going to go ahead and close it. Um, and looks like 81% voted must be guaranteed issue under the ACA. Very good, very good. That is correct. It's item uh, answer, answer C. It must. Uh, must be guaranteed under the ACA, and that's not true. It uh, is not. All right, let's keep moving on here. The next cost component of level funding is, is administrative uh, services, administration. And uh, even though it's the smallest cost component, it probably has the greatest potential effect on total plan costs because that administrator who's paying the claims and, and uh, running and operating the program, you know, they if they do a good job and they keep your claims payments uh, down, uh, or you know they don't they don't pay claims that are are not eligible, things like that, uh, that'll have a big impact on what your costs are. So, administrative services can generally be provided by either a carrier, and we call this an administrative services only or ASO arrangement, and um, they've been around for a long time, or it can be provided by a licensed bonded uh, administrator or what we call a third-party administrator or TPA. In both cases, uh, the, the, either the ASO or the administrator is paid uh, by uh, e either a, a PEPM fee or percentage of the total funding cost, much, much like you'd see in a, in a traditional uh, fully insured plan. Um, and that's, uh, and, and those, those costs can vary uh, greatly by who the administrator is and, and uh, what they what they do. Uh, most administrative costs will, will include a broker commission or fee that's built into the total cost of the level funding. So uh, this is, um, brokers are, are paid to place this business and, and they're paid, I think, uh, fairly and competitively. Um, so what, what are the services provided by either an ASO or a TPA arrangement? Well, Obviously, as I said, basic or enhanced claims processing of you know medical, dental, vision, prescription drug disability, that kind of stuff. So it, you know they're providing claims processing. Uh, they will provide basic or enhanced uh, reports of claims. They some of them will provide some predictive modeling to look forward uh, in the future about where your claim costs will be and and, and what have you. Uh, they'll provide the plan setup, they'll provide the plan documents, and if there are any annual filings, um, you know, Form 5500, et cetera, uh, they, will, they will provide that as well. Um, they will generally uh, 
handle the role of contracting with providers, uh, you know, PPO, EPO uh, networks. So they'll they'll handle provider contracting, and most of them uh, will see that you contract with a pharmacy benefit management firm, a PBM, uh, which is a very important part of all this. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then, of course, they'll handle the stop loss insurance coverage and making any reports and claim filings with the stop loss insurance carrier. The administrative services agreement that, that is signed by the employer is a key document and it, and it should, uh, might include some, some key performance clauses such as claims turnaround time, claims accuracy, uh, customer service response time and efficiency, uh, provider relations and contracting with the various uh, vendors, PPO, EPO, et cetera. Um, performance audits from vendors, consultants, and actuaries. So these are things that you should expect that, that uh, a good legitimate or organization will, will provide you with. Um, also on the, on, on, the, on the issue of administration, because, because level funding is a packaged program, most carriers provide the same level of services as their fully insured clients receive, except that all carrier level funded ASO programs provide claims experience, as I said before. So that's a big, that's a big difference. Um, uh, if, there's, if there's a provider uh, network being used and, and that provider network charges a fee to quote, rent their network, those fees would be included in the administrative costs. Um, the fees for Pharmacy benefit management are also included, and and typically, if there are prescription drug rebates that are being paid, uh, if those are paid to the carrier, they may offset some or all of their administrative costs by those pharmacy rebates, and that has that's become a big deal in the last few years. Is you know they say that 24% of all pharmacy um, prescription drugs are are now involving you know some rebate. And so that can add up to a lot of money. And, and if they're applying those rebates against the administrative costs or against your claim costs, that, that would be very apparent. Some carriers will reduce their fees in exchange for a percentage of the surplus refund payment. And as, as I mentioned before, um, these surplus refund payments could be 100% or could be less than 100%. Uh, you know, a carrier might say, look, uh, our normal administrative fee is X, but if you want to split, um, say, half the surplus refund with us, say 50-50 of that, we'll reduce our, um, our, our upfront administrative costs because we'll be sharing in some of the profit with you. So, you know, it, it, it's like they're going to get paid one way or the other. And, and the question is, you know, whether it makes sense to uh, uh, lower the administrative costs upfront by splitting the uh, surplus refund with them. Uh, again, there's a lot of different variations on that in the market. The third cost component, so the first two cost components, again, were, were stop-loss insurance and administrative costs, okay? So that third cost component is that of self-funded claims. And, and as you can see here, you know, uh, for those of you who've, who've been in the insurance business a while, you, you know, there's a lot that goes into processing a claim in, in the United States of America. It's not just somebody sends you a bill and you just pay it. I mean, there's, there's a lot more... Uh, to claims payments today than there ever has been. And, and um, so when, when you're in a level funded plan, you have what's called a plan document. And the plan document provides the carrier's 
Uh, it's provided by the carrier's legal department and it contains clearly what's covered, what's limited, and what's an excluded expense. Uh, it provides a definition of eligible expenses and fees. And, you know, does it use usual, customary, and reasonable or reasonable fees? It will comply with the federal laws, ERISA, HIPAA, COBRA, et cetera. And the plan design that you uh, put into your plan document could have a huge impact on utilization. Are you going to have a plan that has first dollar benefits versus a plan that has what we call consumer directed plan, uh, benefits with higher deductibles and things like that? Uh, will the plan allow for steerage to less expensive services so, such as, you know, uh, an incentive to go to an urgent care center versus an emergency room or using generic instead of brand name drugs, uh, having more outpatient than inpatient procedures and using network or non-network providers? And so, uh, and then, and then, of course, in this current era of COVID-19, uh, does the plan allow for the use of virtual care services, and is there an incentive to do that? So these are things that will affect the cost of your claims under this plan. Uh, as I said before, uh, most uh, plans will have provider contracting. They'll they'll provide you with national, regional, or local provider networks. Uh, they could have a metric base or what we call reference-based pricing system using paying providers a percentage of Medicare to define what the reasonable fee is. And in some areas, they may even have direct provider contracting in, in areas where uh, maybe a, a local a clinic or a hospital is, is doing some special things with, with employers in terms of direct contracting. So those are, are important. The bottom line is, is there's a big need for claims analysis here to, to know the who, where, why, how, and when claims are incurred and paid. I mean, this is, this is a lot of money being paid out there, and you need to know what's going on and how it's going on. And yes, there's, there's HIPAA protections about privacy and stuff, but as a self-funded em, employer or as an employer sponsoring a plan, uh, you're allowed to have legal access to that information so that you can make decisions about how your plan needs to work and, and uh, be going forward. There's a number of uh, different healthcare analytic services that can be uh, that are available and can be av available through some of these level funded carriers. And then most employers uh, will ask their broker to provide ongoing review with a consultant or an actuarial firm. And, and you might want to budget those costs in your claim costs because uh, having an outside actuary or consultant uh, involved in some of this can really uh, help you save money. Uh, as I said before on this claim surplus refunds, our experience has been is that anywhere between 50 and 80% of our clients are receiving some sort of a refund each year. It depends on how high or low the aggregate attachment point has been set. But uh, really good clients are seeing a, a rate decrease or a rate pass from time to time. And the average clients are, are seeing a, a modest um, uh, rate uh, uh, surplus refund, uh, but that allows them to kind of stabilize their costs over multiple years. Um, different level funded carriers have different surplus refund provisions, including the best, which is 100% of your cash back, uh, others, 50% of your cash back with a reduced administrative fee or a 50% credit along with a reduced administrative fee. Um, it can, can be net of any RX rebates, as I said before, or it could be sharing some of these RX rebates. So 
you have different types of, of methods and that's done. Uh, the question is, well, how, how long after plan year end is the surplus refund paid? And, and you know, is uh, that can depends on the carrier and the contract. But, but for example, one carrier that we work with, they have a, a standard a 12 month incurred and a, um, a 21 month um, uh, run out period or nine months after the end of the plan year. So after those nine months have, have uh, uh, taken place, then they'll, they'll get their surplus refund check. Um, the other carriers have shorter refund periods. Uh, some others have longer ones. Uh, is the renewal required in order to receive a, a refund? Again, this is a different by carrier. Some carriers say, if you don't renew with us, then you forego your, your refund. Um, others will say, no, we'll still pay you a refund even if you don't renew, but it might be uh, less of a refund be because of the termination liability charges and, and what have you. Um, can or will the rebate be paid as cash or a credit against future payments? That's, that's always fun. So you need to know these things before you present a level funded proposal to your client. Let's go to polling question number three. We're, we're coming up on uh, about 50 minutes here, so let's uh, work through this. Uh, Natalie? Yes, it's lunch. Okay, so polling question number three. Level funded health plans are available only to large employers with 250 or more employees. Is this true or false? Is this true or false? Level funded health plans are available only to large employers with 250 or more employees, true or false? I'll take another swig of my lemonade. Good. We're gonna give it about 30 more seconds. Okay. And don't forget, all attendees must answer every single question to be eligible for CE credit, or each attendee, I should say. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and show the results, and the results are 91% voted false. No, very good. Every, every, uh, this is great, it tells me everybody's staying awake, that's good, <laughs> all right. Very good. So um, normally what I would do is I would walk you through an actual level funded proposal. This is a, a sample one from one of our carriers. I've, I've tried to de-identify as much of it as I can, but, but what you would expect to see in a level funded proposal will look something like this. They, they will probably show you uh, multiple plan designs. In this case, there's four plan designs side by side describing the deductibles, co-insurance, out-of-pocket, and you know, co-payment features, et cetera. Uh, they will then uh, uh, let you know what the specific uh, deductible is and the aggregate stop loss attachment point um, uh, and, and the run out provisions and the surplus options. And then they'll show you down below, in this case, these are the gross funding rates. Now this is based on, again, the census of this particular group and they went through the underwriting process, and uh, these are the rates that they would be paying each month based on, you know, employee or employee spouse, five children, full family, et cetera. And, and, and so you say, well, okay, so that's the gross rate that, 
that the employer is going to pay based on each one of these plan designs. Most of these carriers will offer, um, you, you can pick a single plan or you can offer multiple plans. Uh, most of them maybe limit that choice to three or four uh, multiple plan uh, offerings. But um, that's, that's what that will look like there. And then on the next, uh, let me go two more pages. Yeah. It breaks out those those gross funding rates that you saw and how much of that rate is being paid for specific stop loss premium, how much for aggregate uh, stop loss premium, uh, what the administrative fee costs are, what the aggregate uh, claim funding uh, amount is, how much is in the aggregate corridor. So so like in this case of that thousand seventeen dollars a month for employee only coverage. $566 are, are paying for administrative uh, costs and, and uh, uh, specific uh, aggregate stop loss coverage and also broker commissions, I might add. And then $450.99 of that is going into the claims fund. And that's the amount that, that they would get a, um, a, a rebate on or a refund on if they have money left in the account. So it will break those fees out so that you can clearly see you know, where the money is, is going. Um, whoops, sorry. I just hang on just a second here. Just, there we go. So that's that's how that breaks out. Um, so here are some some considerations that advisors uh, need to have. Um, you know, if if I if I'm going to talk to my client about a fully insured versus a level funded plan, you need to uh, spend some time analyzing things like the administrative services agreement, the stop loss insurance policy, the plan documents, the claim reports and the claims analytics data, the vendor performance reports that, that uh, might be required, any compliance issues, and what I call service vendor proposals and agreements. If you've got other service vendors involved, uh, you, you need to look at those agreements. Uh, you should consider uh, partnering with a consultant or actuarial firm for initial and ongoing services. And I, I'm not gonna do a commercial for my firm here, but that's one of the things that we do. But again, you should, you should have somebody like that if, unless you have them internally uh, to help you with that. Um, a lot of brokers should consider charging a fee for their work that's not dependent on earning a commission for the sale of products. A lot of brokers are now converting over to, instead of a percentage uh, a premium commission, they're converting over to a per employee per month uh, broker fee. And either way, it, it's all disclosed to the client. And in most cases, the, the PEPM broker fee is is the same dollar value overall as the commission was, but it just it just puts everybody in a different perspective about who's who's being paid what and this and that. Uh, and you need to make sure that your professional liability, your E and O insurance, uh, provides coverage for these services. So these are things that that we tell advisors. You know, you you need to be on top of this stuff. Okay, we're going to do our last polling question, and then um, right after we ask the polling question, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and go to a Q&A so that we can stay within the 50 minutes here. Uh, Natalie, uh, it looks like we're open, so um, we'd like to know, did you find today's 
presentation on level funding to be A, very informative, B, okay, but nothing new to me, or uh, C, too basic, it needs more meat. We'd, we'd, we'd kind of like to, there's no right or wrong answer here. We just, we just want to know your opinion. And uh, I think, can I move ahead to the, uh, the last uh, slide then while, while the polling is still going on, Natalie? Is that okay? Uh, no, unfortunately we can't. The, okay. It has to be open, but I can start feeding you questions. That'd be great. Go ahead. Okay. If an employer is currently on a self-funded plan, would the employer need an 1812 or a 1212-15 contract? Uh, repeat the first part of that. If the employer is currently on a self-funded plan, correct. They they would pro well. That depends on what the current self-funded stop-loss policy looks like. If it if it allows for a runout. Um, of uh, runout coverage, say it's a 1218 contract that they're currently on, then no, they, they probably don't need to have a policy that allows for run-in because the prior stop-loss carrier um, is, is really covering that runout. So you wouldn't need that. Now, that being said, let, let me just point out that I've not seen too many of my clients over the years go backwards in this in other words if they, they go from fully insured up to self-funding and then for whatever reason they they think they want to go backwards into a level funded plan and and i gotta be candid with you i don't see that happening very much um, and and there's a lot of different reasons for that and if you'd like to know more you can contact me directly and i'll be happy to chat about it but i i don't see that happening very much most of the time probably 95, 98% of our clients that go into level funding are coming off of a traditional fully insured plan. They're not coming off of a uh, existing self-funded plan. Okay, long answer, I apologize for that. What's the next question? Um, before we go to the next question, I wanna let everyone, I wanna let you know the poll results were 95% voted very informative. Oh, great. Well, that's good, thank you. Appreciate that. No All problem. Right. All right, In, uh, other questions? Yes, the next question is, does Kaiser participate in level funds programs? Kaiser does not offer a level funding program uh, at this time. Uh, not sure that they ever will because they just don't, they don't do the world the same way. Uh, there is a question about whether or not you can, you can put a level funded plan alongside of Kaiser, and up until about a year ago, the answer was yes, you could go alongside of Kaiser. However, they've, they've recently had a, an underwriting change where they will not permit a, uh, uh, in their small group pro program, they will not permit a, uh, a level funded plan that is composite rated to go alongside of a Kaiser plan that is uh, member level rated. So the simple answer is, if I'm on a Kaiser large group plan, I could probably do a level funded plan alongside of that Kaiser large group plan. But right now in California, I cannot put a level funded plan alongside of Kaiser's small group product because they're member level rated and the level funded plan is um, uh, composite rated. 
So and th they may change that rule someday, but right now that's that's what I've been told as of uh, Tuesday of this week, in fact. Next question. Is the medication, is the prescription database similar to the Medical Information Bureau? Um, yeah, I, I guess you could say that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a private, uh, it, again, it was established by Milliman and Robertson where, where you've got all these pharmacies and, and pharmaceutical benefit management companies and all, they're all pouring all of the pharmacy drug utilization information into the Milliman and Robertson system called Curve RX. And um, so it's collecting all that in, in, in that deal. It is a private uh, deal. I mean, carriers have to pay to use that system. It, it ain't free. So it's not, it's not from the government. But it, I guess you could say it's, it's somewhat similar. Yes. What percentage would you say that a fully insured plan saves when they switch to a level funded plans? 20% or 30%? Well, <clears throat> That depends on your point of view. So let me let me be clear about something. Most of the time, when I when I put a level funded plan alongside of a traditional fully insured plan, I don't see a lot of upfront savings. Okay, I might get the same rate or close to the same rate for either one. So I don't see upfront savings on a level funded plan. Uh, certainly of that size. Oh, it might be a few points less percentage points, but most of the time I, I just say I think they're going to be very similar because with level funding, the savings comes at the at the back end, not up front. Okay. And if I'm a carrier and I'm determining rates and I'm saying, look, I you know you need to pay this rate because we think that your claims experience dictates that this is what you're going to have next year. You know, there's no free lunch here. Um, if if somebody says, well, you know, can't my level funded plan cost less? Well, sure it can, but I mean, if the benefits are exactly the same, I would expect that the price that you'll pay upfront will be very similar. I don't see a lot of upfront savings, but the savings will accrue on the back end. And as I said, 50 to 80% of our clients that have level funding are getting refunds, surplus refunds, after the end of, of, of their year. So that's where the savings come from. And that savings amounts, it just depends on the demographics of the group and your plan designs. I have one group that um, hires a lot of young, uh, healthy people. They don't have a lot of claims and stuff. They're not having babies and stuff like that. And they get, they've had consistently each year for the last four years, they've had a substantial um, uh, refund from their level funded carrier. And at the same time, not only are they getting a refund, but they've had rate passes uh, for three out of those four years. So that's where you see the savings on level funding is after the fact, not up front. I, I hope that's what you were trying to get out of. Long, long answer. I apologize. Go ahead. Are all level funded plans rated aggregate age or age banded? Uh, all the level funded plans that we're working with are uh, uh, what we call composite rated. Okay, they're they're not member level rated like the small group fully insured plans. Okay. In fact, I don't know of any level funded plans that are member level rated. They're all composite rated. Think of it as the same rating structure you get with a large group. 
they all have composite rates. They don't have member level rates in the large group market. That's the same thing for level funding. Next question. Are commissions negotiable or are they set PMPM? PM? Um, most of the carriers that we work with, it is a negotiable amount. Under SB-161, is the minimum of 5K per person aggregate the same as a specific stop loss? No, no, they're two different things. So, so the specific stop loss is a $40,000 uh, deductible per person, okay? But the aggregate attachment point is based on a $5,000 uh, aggregate attachment factor per person. So if I've got if I've got 100 people, if I've got 100 people in the group, and I've got a $5,000 uh, aggregate attachment factor, that means that my aggregate attachment point for the group as a whole will be $500,000, 100 times 5,000. That group may also have a a $40,000 specific stop loss. So the the two, the specific and the aggregate, work together so that no one person uh, claim charges will be over $40,000 to go against their aggregate attachment point of 500,000. I hope that makes sense. But there are two separate calculations. Next. So actually, are composite rates better for the employee between 45 to 64 versus the younger employee ages 19 to 35? <laughs> I get this question all the time. The answer is, is depends on the group. I mean, if, if the group's average age, let's just say the group's average age is age 40, then you're going to have a composite rate based on an average of a 40-year-old. But if I've got member level rates, and, and remember, in, in under, under the ACA, you have a three to one uh, rate uh, compression. In other words, the rate for a 20-year-old uh, can, can uh, I'm sorry, the rate for a 64-year-old can't be more than three times the rate of a 20-year-old. So if the 20-year-old rate is $200 a month, and the 64-year-old uh, rate cannot be more than say $600 a month. You follow me? This is the rate compression, all right? So if you've, if you've got uh, younger employees and they're a member level deal, they're gonna be happy because their rate's only $600, I mean $200. Whereas that 64 year old is gonna have a $600 rate. Now, if I'm in a group that the average age of the group is say 40, and let's just say for discussion's sake, if that means that the composite rate is $400 a month, what do you think? If I'm a young employee and, and, and I'm going to pay, and, and I'm going to pay, let's just say I'm paying 10% of, of, of this cost, I'm going to, am I happier paying 10% of $200, which is 20 bucks, or 10% of $400, which is 40 bucks? Okay. Whereas if I'm the older employee, I'm, I'm pretty darn happy paying 10% of $400. And unfortunately, the, the younger people are helping, you know, keeping that rate down for me. So this is, a, this is a question that's gone on for the last eight years, ever since we went to member level rating and 
I'm sure that some of the carriers that don't want to allow level funding to go alongside of their plan, that's that's what they don't want to upset either. Uh, I happen to have a slightly different point of view about the results of that, but that's that's muted here and there. Next question. Um, before I continue, I definitely want to let everyone know that I will be sending a copy of the, I'm sorry, a link to the recording as well as a copy of the slides um, during this presentation, just in case anyone has to drop off right now. Um, but yes, we do have a few more questions left for anyone who still needs assistance. Um, the next question is, can we receive a copy of a service agreement to disclose our PEPM fee? Ask that one more time. Can we receive a copy of a service agreement to disclose our PEPM fee? Um, well, as you know, under the new federal laws that went into effect uh, last year, uh, all brokers are supposed to provide a disclosure of their fees to their clients. And that's really a separate issue from level funding. So the answer is, you know, if, if your agency has adopted, you know, a kind of a template like, like, you know, we at Dickerson provided a template that agents could use in a word format to give to their clients that clearly shows, you know, this is how much I'm being paid for your account. And it doesn't matter whether the account's fully insured or level funded or self-funded or whatever, it just discloses what your fees are or commissions are. And that's what the law is now requiring so that there is a template for that available it's not specific to level funding it's just available to any agent that wants to do this disclosure and if, if you'll contact one of your dickerson uh, sales reps uh, they can provide you a copy of that in in a word document form i i hope that's what you're asking about i'm i, I don't know of one that's specific to the level funded program uh, other than the fact that when the employer signs the administrative services agreement in the master app with the carrier, there will be a disclosure on there of what the broker fee is in that. And that's included in that. But that's that's different than the broker disclosure form that the federal government is now requiring. Next question. Um, yes. Next question is, Dave, please review the surplus as I am confused as to what the surplus is and how it becomes a surplus. Okay, imagine, imagine there are three buckets, okay? And, and Every time I send a, a payment into the insurance carrier and level funding, uh, my, my, every dollar that I send in, it gets divided in these three buckets. One bucket is the administrative bucket. Let's just say that 20 cents is going into the administrative bucket out of my dollar. And uh, another bucket is the stop loss premium bucket, and that's say 40 cents. And then the third bucket is my claims bucket. And I'm putting 40 cents on my dollars into that claims bucket. So every month the carrier, of course, takes the money out of the you know, out of the stop loss bucket and the administrative bucket to pay for stop loss premiums and the administrative fees. And then they take money out of the claims bucket as claims are presented to be paid. That's the bucket that if there is money left over in that bucket at the end of the plan year, following the run out after the end of the plan year, that's the, re that's the surplus that can be refunded to me all or in part. Okay, so go back to that. Remember this chart that I had earlier, the pie chart that showed that the three pieces of that. So it's a, a, the green piece of that pie chart, which goes into the claims bucket 
that's the money that's available to pay claims. And if there's uh, claims are less than what's in that bucket, then that's the amount that would be uh, refunded back to me or a percentage of that that I split with the carrier. Does that make, I hope that makes sense. It if not, call me. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. It looks like that's all the questions we have for today. So thank you everyone. Thank you, Jay, for putting on this very informative presentation. Thank you everyone for staying. Um, I hope we answered all of your questions. Like I said earlier, I will be sending a link to this recording as well as a copy of the slides to everyone within the next 24 to 48 hours. So you should receive it latest by Monday, business hours, I mean. Um, but that being said, thank you, Dave, for an, for an informative presentation, like always. And thank you, everyone. And have a wonderful rest of your Thursday. And stay hydrated. See you all in two, in two weeks. Yes, see you in two weeks. And stay hydrated in the meantime. It is scorching hot outside. But have a yeah, great one. All right, bye-bye.